0: Welcome to People, Places, Planet Pod, the official podcast of the Environmental Law Institute, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization working to ensure a healthy environment, prosperous economies, and vibrant communities founded on the rule
1: of law. Welcome to this week's episode of the People, Places, Planet podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Backer. The U.S. was ranked 39th out of 166 countries in a 2023 review of national efforts to implement the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, or SDGs. For those of you who are not familiar, the SDGs are 17 integrated goals that address global challenges, including those related to poverty, inequality, climate change, the environment, peace, and justice. Advancing the SDGs would make the U.S. A more prosperous equitable healthy resilient and above all sustainable society for all the book governing for sustainability published this past may provides a detailed set of recommendations organized around the sdgs for federal state tribal territorial and local governments as well as the private sector and civil society governing for sustainability offers insights into why the U.S. is falling short and creates a blueprint for future action. In this episode, I sit down with the editors, John Dernbach and Scott Chang, and gain insights into how all can play a role in making sustainable development a reality. John and Scott, thank you so much for being here with me today.
0: Thank you. Appreciate the opportunity.
1: This is the fourth book published by ELI, Assessing Sustainable Development Efforts in the US. What do you see as a goal of this project?
0: At the Earth Summit in 1992, the UN Conference on Environment and Development, countries all over the world didn't just endorse sustainable development they agreed to take action to make sustainable development happen within their own boundaries. So in the spring of 1997, as we're looking ahead to the five-year anniversary of the Earth Summit, I had students in a seminar look at what the United States had done in specific areas and publish that as an article. The idea was that somebody out there ought to be looking at what the U.S. was actually doing. There's an aspect of public accountability to that there's also an aspect of public information to that. And we published the article in the Environmental Law Reporter. Five years later, it seemed appropriate to put together a book with experts. And since that time, the books have been organized around not simply reporting on what the United States is doing, but also on making recommendations. And so these books all have recommendations in them because, They're directed at the idea that the United States needs to make more progress on sustainable development. And they're also directed at the idea that public information about how the U.S. is done and specific recommendations can help move that process along. The one additional aspect or goal of the books since the project started was to accelerate U.S. progress on sustainable development. It's not simply enough to have a green building here or a sustainable project there. We need to do a lot of this at scale, and we need to do this as rapidly as possible. And the books have been
2: directed at that as well, particularly the last two.
1: Scott, what about you? How did you get involved in the project?
2: I was really excited when John asked if I might help with the fourth book, because I'd been at ELI starting in 2003 and had seen some of the earlier books come through and help with some of the editing. And for me, the goal of this book was really to talk about what is good governance. As someone who's a fan of having metrics and measuring progress, I've been surprised at how little we do with that in the United States, despite some efforts in the late 90s to try to do that. And so I think the SDGs provide a really good framework to either use themselves or to adopt a framework that's more American in nature that people could say, hey, how are we actually doing in delivering on sustainable development, delivering on health, poverty reduction, sustainable environment, good infrastructure, instead of just having political debates back and forth.
1: So, Scott, you mentioned the Sustainable Development Goals as an opportunity to measure U.S. progress on a host of challenges that we face. Can you speak to whether there is a domestic process for how the U.S. measures and reports on its progress?
2: a great question, Sarah. And the U.S. has committed, as part of adopting the Sustainable Development Goals, submitting a voluntary national review periodically to the U.N. saying how we're doing. And unfortunately, we have not done that. I think John, creating this book, actually set up one process. The authors go through and do take a look at how we're doing and report on recommendations. So that's an informal process, but it is a process. The Sustainable Development Solutions Network has its own format. We're looking at progress and reporting on how the U.S. is doing, both on its own and vis-a-vis other countries. There's also all kinds of private efforts that are underway. This isn't all about government, which is something we forget about sometimes. And so we need to find a way to include what's happening in the private sector. I would say that in terms of how we're doing overall, having just enacted the infrastructure bill and the Inflation Reduction Act, were two basically sustainable development laws, although no one talks about them that way. And I think those were both leapfrogging for taking years and years of progress and finally doing something that we needed to do 20 years ago and making some good efforts on sustainable development. The
0: one thing that I would add to this is the Sustainable Development Solutions Network does something that is pretty interesting. They publish rankings of countries based on their progress on the Sustainable Development Goals. In 2021, according to the Sustainable Development Solutions Network, the U.S. ranked 32 out of 165 countries. And if you want to get some idea of the neighborhood we were in, Chile and Lithuania were 30 and 31, and Malta and Serbia were 33 and 34. The top ranking countries in that order were Finland, Sweden, and Denmark. SDSN also publishes rankings of states, and in 2021, they said, well, on average, US states were less than halfway to achieving the SDGs by 2030. The highest-ranking states were Vermont, Massachusetts, and Washington. The lowest-ranking states were Louisiana, West Virginia, and Mississippi. A critical thing here is that a great deal of the work on the SDGs does not occur in the name of the SDGs. It's work that is just done that happens to map in a way that is consistent with the Sustainable Development Goals.
1: So why do you think it's important to frame those efforts and that progress in terms of the Sustainable Development Goals?
0: Well, I think what the Sustainable Development Goals do is they take the broad Sustainable Development effort and they particularize it. Sustainable Development is not... A traditional way of understanding environmental protection. It's a way of integrating environmental protection with everything else we care about economic development, social well being, and even peace and security. So, the idea when we talk about sustainable development is not just that we're relabeling traditional environmental work, we're trying to put environment into a context of where it fits with everything else. In a way that advances environmental protection. So it's a way of making environmental protection, economic development, social well-being, and peace and security happen at the same time, and not to treat the environment and development as opposing forces. Well, that's conceptually really important. But when you ask, well, how does that work exactly in a particular context, what the sustainable development goals do, is they'll take a particular issue like hunger or employment or water quality or poverty. They set specific goals that would advance sustainable development on each of those. They were adopted in 2015, and the idea is to try and achieve those goals by 2030. So they particularize substantively the sustainable development effort, but they also create a time frame for achieving things which you don't have with sort of the abstract sustainable development goal. So the added value of the SDGs is you can learn a lot in a particular situation or a particular context about what you might do to achieve sustainable development that you don't get with the broad framework.
2: Yeah, I think John makes a really important point. And I would just say there's this misunderstanding of folks when they talk about environmental law that it's somehow opposite to economic development. And we've learned quite the opposite and sustainable development in the SDGs teaching is quite the opposite. Since we enacted the Clean Air Act, we've reduced the six ambient air pollutants by 80% while growing the GDP by 300%. You can't have one without the other. You can't have economic development without water, a sustainable climate, without social justice and with rampant inequality. Those are just interdependent in a way that our laws put them into silos that are under-informed about the effects that one set of laws has on another set of both laws and society. And the SDGs try to help us pull those together and look at them at the same time and to understand that trying to reach for a green economy means economic growth. It does mean some economic losers, but overall it means a more sustainable economy longer term. But also thinking about some of the things that come into play, like, do we have enough of the minerals we need to create a green economy? Are those minerals found in places where they're accessible? Are there people living on those places who may not want to have their land disrupted in that way? It makes us think in a much more comprehensive way, rather than just a pollution control or a resource extraction perspective.
0: If I can just add one thing, the climate change issue really puts that on the table. I mean, the Inflation Reduction Act is super interesting that way because what the Inflation Reduction Act does is it works with carrots instead of sticks by providing money rather than regulating. Goldman Sachs issued a report not too long ago saying that a couple trillion dollars were actually going to be unleashed in investment by the Inflation Reduction Act. And this is an example, I think, of where the economic and the climate pieces come together in a big way that is essentially positive, where they reinforce each other. The investment creates jobs, the activities that the investment provides and the jobs that people do in turn reduce greenhouse gas emissions. The pieces in a broad sense all work together.
1: The book and both of you in this episode have made it quite clear that environmental goals and economic goals are not opposed and that they are in fact indivisible. Can you speak a little bit more to how the first goal of poverty reduction is linked to climate action?
0: The one quick thing that comes to mind on that is that the people who are least able to adapt effectively to climate change are people with lower incomes. And it's harder for them to move air conditioning is more expensive. They wind up in housing that may not be fully insulated. They tend to live in places, in other words, where climate actually makes things worse for them. And we see that over and over and over again, rising sea levels in some New York City neighborhoods, heat in the Southwest and the like. That's probably the core point is that the people that are most at risk, the people who are going to be most adversely affected,
2: are people with lower incomes.
0: The work on climate change puts them in a condition that is uh, less bad than it would otherwise be.
2: I think John's right. And I think climate, as he was saying earlier, makes so clear that in our current set of environmental laws and the way our regulations stack up, it's created to make sure that the winners continue to win and the losers continue to lose by taking vested interest and in allowing them to continue to defend themselves. And that's made sure that people who are entrenched in poverty stay entrenched in poverty. And I think the climate goals of trying to look again at how we're creating these systems of production, how we allocate, who we tax and why, what we give subsidies to and why can actually be used to get rid of poverty. They can become a poverty alleviation method by helping, for example, families who own land plant trees and get carbon credits or do cover crops. We can find all kinds of ways for folks who are in poverty to earn revenue from their traditional resources.
1: So as we mentioned in the top of this episode, the U.S. ranked 39th out of 166 countries in terms of the progress it's made on the SDGs. What are the main challenges that the U.S. faces? And why is the U.S. falling short?
2: One, there's a lack of awareness in the United States that the Sustainable Development Goals even exist. John and I were at a conference at a law school of sustainability law professors, and the number who didn't know what the SDGs were was surprising. And when I asked my own colleagues and students how many people know what the SDGs are, it's still a minority of people. That doesn't happen in other countries, which tend to take them more seriously. So that's number one, just a lack of awareness. Number two is In America, we have a real allergy towards two things. One, anything international like the United Nations. And two, anything looking like planning, particularly if it's imposed by a government, that we just dislike in our bones, given where we come from as a nation. And so hearing that there's this great set of United Nations created goals, despite the fact the United States had a key role in creating them, just doesn't land well with your average American. And that's why I've mentioned earlier it may be necessary for us in the U.S. to create our own domestic set that mirror the SDGs that don't get presented as the United Nations. Why we're 32nd, that would be a very long discussion across all the different goals. By and large, I would say it's because Americans believe in bootstrapping ourselves up and that there's this idea that we can all improve on our own as individuals. There's a general lack of agreement around collective action the benefits of collective action, the benefits of comprehensive health care, so that we're all well enough to contribute to the economy. There's a general lack of understanding that our number one cause of bankruptcy are health care bills, and that there's just this belief going back to where we started that individuals should be able to do it on their own. That I think is actually anti-American, but it's become portrayed as the American way of coming at things. And other countries have found that there's ways to do collective action without being communist or socialist. And hence, the top three are all countries that are liberal democracies that are making progress.
0: That was really helpful, Scott. I would add, we tend to see ourselves as singular or special in the U.S. and working hard to implement international agreements is not something that a lot of folks warm up to very much. One of the things that we had tried to do with our book is to particularize the SDGs to the US situation to say, here are the most important things that the US can do at the federal, state and local level and in the private sector. And that's really what our book attempts to do is to try and overcome the obstacle that this comes from an international body by saying, well, this is how the US ought to implement those. On another level though, the SDGs cut across a broad range of issues and talking broadly about how to improve things in the United States is often a harder thing for us to do than to talk about a particular issue like climate or poverty. And I think that's part of it as well. Scott and I tried to capture what the SDGs would mean for the U.S., which was making life better for everyone, in an article that we wrote a year or two ago based on the book. And I think that still captures the purpose and point of the SDGs for the U.S., But talking about it at that level of abstraction is something that some folks aren't comfortable with.
1: So given these challenges that you both laid out, how do we approach these constraints in order to advance the SDGs? The SDGs will require political will, congressional action and funding. And as we've seen, all of those are not easily given to these kinds of projects.
0: Well, a starting point, Sarah, is to recognize that a lot of the recommendations in the book are directed at private actors who don't face the same constraints. Funding, political will, and the like certainly apply to governmental actors, especially at the federal level and to some degree at the state level. But in the private sector, there's a lot of interest by investors, stakeholders, boards of
2: directors, and other folks that
0: are important to corporations to move things in a more
2: sustainable direction. I think John's exactly right. We tried pretty hard to get the authors to focus more on private action. But it's interesting how much academia just doesn't focus on private law. The focus is really on public law. Having said that, it's also true that these things that you mentioned, Sarah, political will and congressional action aren't monolithic and they are movable. And so I guess one of the things to say is, well, then vote. And looking at where young people's concerns are compared to older folks, there is a significant amount of concern that I think would be translated into the SDGs or things we should move forward. I think there's a ton of concern around the sustainability of the economy, around regenerative agriculture, around climate change. If people decide that it's important enough to them, they can shift the political will. It's been done before. We didn't get to where we are today in terms of like the political revolution of 1995 when Congress changed significantly because people didn't do anything. It's because they stood up and said, we want a different system and we want to change it. Well, that can happen again. And the way American politics works, it will. But if people want to take an hour a day instead of being on TikTok or Instagram and talk to their local folks about how they think about politics, if they want to figure out who their congressional representative is, who the local city council folks are and act on it, then we'd probably see a very different outcome.
1: So, in that case, do you see this book as a guide for citizens in trying to learn about the sustainable development goals and make an impact? In other words, who is the audience of this book?
0: Well, I think we're looking at a variety of audiences. One audience for sure is people who are politically active. But on the academic side, we're also interested in that from several different points of view. Prior books in this project have been used in classrooms for quite a long time. And certainly that's a place where the book can be used and I think should be used. And then there's a kind of broader point that Scott alluded to earlier, that we don't have the resources to tackle each one of these issues in a silo. In other words, we can't successfully address climate change in a way that's going to, say, hurt job creation or the economy or that is going to make poor people worse off. We've got to find ways of addressing climate change in ways that furthers these other goals, these other SDGs. Figuring that out is a political job, but it's also an area where academic people, I think, can be of considerable value in the research and writing that they do.
1: What exactly are the incentives for the private sector to do the right thing and advance sustainability goals?
2: I think it's a good business sense, Sarah, and that they've learned that. So if you look at most companies reporting on how they're doing from a human rights, environmental perspective, the SDGs are a part of those reports. And in this way, many multinational companies and US companies are far ahead of the federal government in understanding the SDGs and in using the SDGs. And they're not doing it out of some kind of misplaced sense of corporate do-gooderism, and they're not misusing Their shareholders' money, what they're doing is saying, we're creating products. Products need inputs. Products need sustainable electricity. Products need a well-informed, trained, and healthy workforce in order for us to work. I work with some of the leading multinationals on their policies around land rights. And they're not doing it because they think it's just a nice thing to do. They're doing it because if people don't have secure land rights to provide agricultural goods to these companies, they won't be able to source them and make their product. It is a business argument at the core. And also, this is a conservative argument at the core. We're not calling for government to step in. We're calling for people to just do what makes sense in order to make the economy and the environment and social welfare all be sustainable at the same time. There may be at times some greenwashing. I'm not saying that never happens. It does. But also, the new term that's out there is green hushing companies doing things and being quiet about it because some people are trying to politicize doing good with corporate efforts. And I think that just shows you that some people feel threatened by the fact that companies are doing things that benefit all. And it sounds political when it's not political at all. It's just good business sense.
0: The model for thinking about the role of companies is really different now than it was in 1970, when mostly what you saw was citizens trying to make companies do more and companies not trying to do more. And now the reality is well described by what Scott just said. Not everybody sees it that way. There's still a lot of skepticism. And to the folks who are skeptical about the private sector, what I would encourage you to do is keep an open mind on a company by company or sector by sector basis. There's actually quite a lot of good that a great many companies are doing in moving in a more sustainable direction.
1: So I know you've touched on having people vote, having people speak to their representatives, but how are you hoping that these recommendations will make it from the page to policy and to action?
0: We hope that people will read the book and that they'll look at the recommendations and they'll take them to heart and they'll talk to their elected representatives about them. We hope that people and companies will read these recommendations and look to see whether there's additional things that they might be able to do. And we hope that people in the classroom setting will look at these recommendations, and then when they graduate, take them out into the world, or maybe even while they're still in the classroom, take them out into the world. And so we're hopeful that people listening to this, people who learn about the book in other ways, will find ways of moving the recommendations into the real world. Not so much, perhaps, across
2: the board, but certainly on the issues that they work on. The book does a great job, thanks to the author's insights, of helping people figure out what to do next. And there's a lot of energy right now. There's a lot of money out there moving forward. There's a lot of push from foundations, from NGOs, from companies to try to do something around climate, which is basically sustainability. And I think we have many people create something new because they're not aware that something already exists. And because the SDGs pull these together in a way that's helpful, I hope people will learn that they're there. There's no need to reinvent the wheel. You already have a plan of action ready to go. So when the opportunity presents itself, we're able to execute.
1: Are there one or two recommendations that are offered in the book that you find the most innovative or the most creative?
2: I can't pick between my favorite children, but we will say that there are a couple of insights that I took from reading the author's different pieces and putting them together. One I've already mentioned, which is the insight around healthcare that our failure to provide efficient, cost-effective healthcare in our country drives inequality among genders, drives poverty, drives hunger. I was aware that we had problems there, but I wasn't aware to the degree to which it infects our economy and our society. The second was the food and agriculture system. Agriculture for many states is now the number one source of air and water pollution. So from a pollutant perspective, it's significant. The amount of food waste, the lack of good nutrition that leads to a problem in education into health, to environmental problems, to water use and mismanagement is another really important cross-cutting insight, I think, from the book.
0: I agree with Scott that it's hard to pick among the different chapters and the different recommendations. One set of recommendations that really appealed to me and affected my thinking is the one on partnerships. There's actually an SDG on that. The basic idea is is that this is not simply about the government requiring someone to do something or prohibiting someone from doing something. What partnerships are about is varieties of different public and private entities getting together and working toward particular SDGs, on particular recommendations, two kinds of things that jumped out at me. I liked a lot the recommendations on environmental justice and the water pollution chapter that Bob Adler wrote because they draw attention to the reality that it's not enough if most people get clean water, but some people don't. That's not good enough. We have to really try and make available clean water to everyone. And the chapter on decent work in SDG 8 uh, by Steve Herzenberg and the recommendations on strengthening the role of labor struck me as both timely and important, particularly as we appear to be coming out of the UAW strike.
1: I want to close off our discussion by asking both of you if you can provide any guidance for individuals who might feel overwhelmed by how much progress we need to make on these goals. How can they contribute to advancing the SDGs in their lives?
0: That's a really good question, Sarah. My answer would be that we don't, most of us, have an agenda that covers everything. What I would suggest is that whatever you do, whether you're a student, whatever line of work you do, wherever you live or work, whatever you're good at, look at what's in front of you at work, at home, the various communities in which you operate, and see if there's a more sustainable way to do it. Use the SDGs, use the book to help figure that out, because there's no one right thing to do. There's no one right place to do it. There's no one right line of work here. There's so much that needs to be done. And if we all help to make progress in the places where each of us live and work, then together, we get to a more
2: sustainable future. I think Joan's exactly right. I think it's you do you and you let others do them, you do what's your strength. If you're really into electric cars and that's how you want to make a contribution, knock your socks off. But if you see somebody else driving a pickup truck, let them have a solar installation at home that lets them stay off the grid and do something different than yourself. There isn't a, a need to be in lockstep. And if you find yourself struggling and getting burned out, there's another book I'd recommend called Zen and the Art of Saving the Planet which can help people navigate climate burnout.
1: Well, I definitely need Zen. So I will be reading that book and I am linking the book and other relevant resources in the show notes. John and Scott, this has been such a wonderful discussion and I really hope people read this book and learn about what they can do to advance the sustainable development goals. Thanks so much for being here with me today.
0: Thank you for tuning in to People, Places, Planet pod, brought to you by the Environmental Law Institute. We would like to hear from you, so please send us your questions, comments, and ideas to podcast at ELI.org. And if you're interested in learning more about our work, attending one of our events, reading our publications, or becoming a member, please visit our website at www.eli.org.